Hello, and welcome to The Librarian is In, the New York Public Library's podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. I'm Frank. And I'm Crystal. Um, I feel like I don't want to say what I just said anymore. I want to change that because I just realized I'm saying it by rote now. Like, hello, and welcome to The Librarian is In, the New York Public Library's podcast. But... And that actually plays into what I read is that I think I definitely have a resistance towards doing what I'm told to do or um, doing doing things by rote when I when I when or I criticize other people for doing things by by rote uh, without thinking what they're actually saying anymore. And that always makes me alarmed about myself. You know what I mean? Like when you use terms. And then you realize, I don't even really know what that means. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm, so I'm always like pu- pushing about, or trying to uh, push about my own level of understanding about what I'm actually saying or what other people are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, What's an example of that? What? What's yeah, an example of that? Because um, what I just did, like the introduction to this podcast is just, you know, informational. So it's not like it's questioning meaning. Mm-hmm. It just made me think about it because I, I can say it now without thinking. Um, that's a great question. Like saying, I mean, I guess hot button terms in the culture. Oh, like, like buzzwords? Right. And then you say, well, I am a, or you are a, I guess things like conservative, liberal. I mean, mm-hmm. That's one one possible example when when you say I am a I am something and then someone else can say, Well, what do you mean by that exactly? And then someone's like stops and they sort of get tripped up. They're like, Well, I don't know, it's just I am that. Um and that the language behind it, like the description behind it is sort of gone, or it's just so much a part of you, you're used to saying that's what I am, that you don't really think about what it means anymore. Good good question of a given example. Um there are go ahead. I was gonna say, do you feel like like I've I feel like I encountered maybe this is what you're talking about when I am in different sort of group environments. So if I'm with a lot of my library peers, I think we have a shorthand for language and we're very used to saying certain things and people understand what this means. Like we would say we're reading books, like what does that mean? We all have done it and know it. But if I'm with friends who are not familiar with libraries, it could be a very like strange words to them. Um yeah. Like that? That's jargon, like in in language. Mm-hmm. I mean more. I guess it has to do with identity. I wouldn't plan on talking about this. It just happened, but that's good. <laughs> I, identity and that how we we're so used to. It's not jargon per se, mm-hmm. like li- limited to an industry. It's more like words that we're used to saying in, with relation to ourselves. That when someone might challenge you, you have a hard time explaining it. Because you're so used to set calling, and then you go, then you might realize, well, maybe I don't really feel that way anymore. It's just like a shorthand for oneself. I'm not talking about like okay, like language that's common to an industry like librarianship or libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, what is a good example? Like, uh, let me think for a second. Let's reflect. I, um, I don't know. I can't think. <laughs> I was going to say, like, and my thought was maybe like the term feminist or something like that. Would that 
fall in line with yeah you, you're yes you're yes that's exactly what i'm talking about when someone says i am a and then someone else will say well define that and then they might have a hard time defining it um or define it in such a way where i guess somebody could disagree mm-hmm. yeah I, I guess it's, it's sort of just like what do we it's always an investigation of what exactly do we mean or what do you mean when we're talking together um that was harder than it should have been but thank you crystal i guess you know because i read an article in the atlantic uh magazine and it has to do with with shared realities and what that is and also shared language Mm -hmm. um because i mean Coincidentally enough, it's called after Babel or Babel, B-A-B-E-L. Mm-hmm. How <laughs> you're, it basically synthesizes a lot of stuff I always talk about and become obsessed with and sort of have to start letting go. But it's after Babel, how social media dissolved the mortar of society and made America stupid. The mortar? Or- the mortar, like cements or concrete. Oh, okay. Cement, Interesting. Like bricks and mortar. And he talks oh. a lot about shit, which we the culture is talking about shared reality. The the common thing right now is how we say we don't all as Americans let's say have a shared reality, and maybe mm-hmm. did we ever really have a shared reality, and share the same language? Like yeah, tr- good there question. are different truths that different sides of a, of an issue seem to mm-hmm. adhere to, and they don't agree. So. How can we as a society or culture move forward? And Jonathan Haidt, the author, H-I-D-T, author author of this article, um, positions social media as one of the big problems, which I've always thought was sort of true in that Mm -hmm. social media gave voice and platforms, as they say, to people who were previously on the extreme sides of issues that would have been considered fringe. Um, and at the same time, social media has given voice to social issues that like Me Too movement, things like mm-hmm. that, that have actually done some good in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's never one thing bad or good. But so Jonathan Haidt discusses how in 2009, like social media and before 2009 was sort of just like a very benign democratic tool in that um, democracies thrive on people cooperating and and people tend to come together for the common good to get stuff done. And technology usually aids that like railroads or um, early internet, like chat rooms and message boards and things like that. Um, And then the turning point, this author of this article thinks is 2009 ish when um, Facebook added the share function and Twitter was had retweets Mm -hmm. and likes. And then, he says it turned in. It started turning into where people were more comfortable sh- being intimate online and sharing personal information with companies and the public, mm-hmm. and also it became self-conscious um, and became started branding them. We started branding ourselves and performing more than engaging with other people. Mm-hmm. Like it became more of a personal brand and sort of in, and sort of performing for an audience rather than like having a phone conversation with a friend that can actually strengthen a relationship This performing and branding sort of like weakened the connection Mm -hmm. of social, the social connections. Um, 
and, and then the algorithm, you know, jumped in where it used to be you'd see um, new comments of your followers first and then older ones and it was really overwhelming and then eventually the algorithm just gave you stuff that you seemed to like and then started pushing the stuff you liked to you and then that created sort of bubbles that we were in with mm -hmm. just seeing um, stuff that sort of pertains to our the stuff we've liked before which may or may not be real it's just sort of algorithmically done and sort of fed you that way mm -hmm. um, and so like I said before like as the article says it, it it gave rise to a whole panoply of different voices, which in theory sounds good. Um, yeah. And then as a result of this sort of like bubble living factional um, situation that social media users find themselves in or can, um, it was not only castigating people on another side of an issue and so-called canceling them or piling on or heavily aggressively criticizing them, it seemed to become an issue on both the right and the left where you would criticize and castigate or cancel people within your mm -hmm. side if they didn't adhere to what you thought what was the right way to be. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, you know, there are various studies how the extremes are the most aggressive and participatory and how that they're really sort of the minority. It's something like 9% are extreme conservative and 11% are extreme progressive on the left. Um, and that there's this, as the author of this article, Jonathan Haidt says, an exhausted middle ground majority who whose voices are not getting heard. Because like before with the algorithm, it's like, a lot of the things that surface for users of social media is things that trigger emotions and, mm -hmm. and rage, as we know from social media is, is one of the biggest ones and outrage gets a lot of retweets. And then it becomes about money because then, you know, you retweet stuff and it's, mm -hmm. and then that whole argument, you know, whole thing about how, you know, fake news or election news, um, you know, became, you know, uh, spread around social media platforms because it makes money. Mm -hmm. So you follow the money and you realize that's in the issue too. And the whole thing is exhausted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talking about the exhausted majority. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it is interesting when you're talking about that idea of how these algorithms are forming bubbles because it feels like there is less this element of chance that happens like I'm just thinking about like my personal like use of YouTube or um, music streaming, right? Where like maybe I'll listen to a K-pop song and all of a sudden I'm just presented with only that. And I think it's it's hard to kind of break out of the stuff that you're already listening to or watching because the algorithm keeps providing that for you and they're not providing anything maybe that is difference, right? And so I think there's like other bad parts of of that and I can see how that bubble can form very quickly and I kind of actually really hate it in some ways yeah. um, and you know it's interesting to also hear about the the description of thinking about like Twitter and how these very small changes seem to have um extended impact like just thinking about the sort of rumors or I, I guess maybe it is news I don't know 
with um, Elon Musk and the idea of like, if, if you have these tweets and if they change it uh, so that there is an edit button, so you could go back to your tweets and like actually change things, um, how that would maybe affect how we perceive social media and what kind of long-term um, consequences there might be. No. Oh, wait, did you just say, because the author, Jonathan Hayes, says mm-hmm. in his article, he does give solutions or tries to. He says okay. it's a huge issue. And one of the issues about um, how to manage social media is like you, you don't want to get in a slippery slope to censorship because we're never going back to mm-hmm. days where we didn't have this, these platforms. Mm-hmm. And he said that certain, um, like the, the Facebook whistleblower, Hagen, her name is, she had mm-hmm. said something like, if you retweet, by the retweet of an article, let's say, or an opinion, the retweeter has to actually copy and paste the article manually, like getting a couple of extra steps to make it more work to do mm-hmm. this. So, so misinformation can't particularly go viral if it's so easy. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to make a little bit more effort to, to mm-hmm. put forward information. I mean, it's... Think little things like that that actually could make a difference because, like the pile-on mm-hmm. culture of Twitter, can you know be very easy to manifest. And then it it does beg the question sometimes: like, is is the pile-on real? Like, is it just yeah. people who are retweeting and then they forget about their the issue that they retweeted, but mm-hmm. get in the mainstream media, who I think is also a little bit culpable because they pick mm-hmm. up these stories because divisiveness sells in some ways. Like we are always excited about like outrage and what one side is saying about the other. Um, is it really real? Like I sometimes think like when you read articles on like, Oh, America is this, I'm like, is it true? Or are most people just getting up and going to work and trying to get through their day? You know, it's sort of yeah. like this truth thing becomes harder and harder to deal with. And um, parenthetically, a, um, Another article I read about a forthcoming book called Liberalism and Its Discontents mm-hmm. by Francis Fukuyama, who's like a, a historian about liberal societies. And they say, um, there's a quote, while liber- liberal societies agree to disagree about final ends, meaning not you don't always come to a perfect agreement. There is a consensus aspect. Um, And there is also a compromise aspect. Liberal societies cannot survive if they are unable to establish a hierarchy of factual truths. Mm -hmm. This hierarchy is created by elites of various sorts who act independently of those holding political power. Scientific journals will not publish studies that have not passed peer review and responsible journalists have systems for checking facts. No system is foolproof and all are capable of bias, but they are not deliberately engineered by the elites who oversee them to disempower or manipulate ordinary people. That's the ideal. And that's sort of what the system we've, we felt like we were living in because no one, no, there's no point in history where everyone agreed. Mm-hmm. It's just that, and it's interesting to say voices are, are much more predominant now than they were like every different kinds of voices. I remember in my own lifetime, like how you would, you might hear in the mainstream media about a fringe group that sounds sort of scary and crazy. And, um, but they would be a fringe voice. Now that voice is much stronger and that voice could either be divisive and aggressive and hurts, or it could turn into a, a revolution that changes things for the quote better. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's hard to say what, but like 
when you just personally, when we go through our social media day um, and, and try to, let's say, get out of your bubble and listen to voices on another side, and which I've tried to do. I found that I did that a lot during the pandemic is to understand like so-called opinions that I didn't understand or agree with or thought I didn't mm-hmm. agree with. Not only did it not change my mind per se, but it also made me feel like we're never going to come together mm-hmm. because these bubbles are so ironclad in some ways. Like you, there is no, there is no, there technically can be no interest on a, on behalf of a person to pursue any other thought other than the ones they want to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing about social media, and this article says to the, uh, about how social media has made us stupid is that it's too fast. It's too fast. Yeah. The, uh, the, you know, the framers of the constitution knew that the, the public in aggregate can get mob mentality can get crazy. Mm -hmm. And it was built into the system that it would be slower and, and a little bit more um, have cooling off periods so that our leaders could be insulated from the mob craziness and then come election time, that's where we would manifest our voice. What do we hear all the time now is vote, 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 um, which is the, the way to do it. But it's too fast because you, by, by think of it, I always think of it this way. And do you ever, like when you're brushing your teeth or taking a shower or whatever, fantasize that you're on a talk show like The View or something and they're asking you about <laughs> Am I revealing too much? I feel like you're revealing a lot right now. I always imagine like what I would say if I was on a talk show and almost not everyone does this. I automatically think I would start like sort of like I do on the podcast, like start slowly and question them about like, if they say, are like, are you a feminist? I'd say, well, mm-hmm. what do you mean by feminist? Like define that term and, and then I can automatically imagine it devolving into something not productive because what do you mean d- define it? You should, you know, I, it suddenly becomes like too, you have to be too quick, Like you yeah. have to take a side really quickly and say, of course I'm a feminist. And if you don't say you're not, then one side will be like, why are you not a feminist? The other side will be like, yeah, not a feminist. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's what voice was that? Um, <laughs> that you have to move very quickly. And these, these issues are, should be reflective. I mean, reflection yeah. is, should be part and, of the discourse and opportunity for it. And it just moves too quickly. Um, I don't think we're built for that. I don't think we can sustain it. That's why it, it seems re- remarkably unfixable in some ways. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, my interactions with social media are probably different from other people's. But I do think that there's this element, like we go there for the, the pleasure aspect and, you know, scrolling through opinions that maybe yeah. are close to your own. I mean, I go to sometimes to learn things and stuff that gives you more pleasure than things that really challenge your worldview. Right. And often they're presented in these very short little snippets too, that don't have a lot of complexity or it's not really built in. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are other people who like actually, engage with those things and like to throw out their contrary opinion becomes like a big fight on Twitter or whatever. And that also gives them pleasure too. But I do think that there is this, like, you definitely get that dopamine hit when you are reading stuff that really aligns with your way of thinking and searching that out, I think can happen too. And feeling um, 
like, I don't go to social media to feel discomfort. Like, that's not, like, what I go to it for. I go to right. it just to, like, chill and and maybe after work or whatever. And when there are, like, look, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, there are so many articles that talk about a lot of really scary environmental changes, right, that are very serious that I don't have it in me to read because it is so scary to me. And it, it, so I scroll through those very quickly. Like I don't engage with them in the same ways because I almost feel like it's avoidance on my part. Um, but I think that's also like a bad thing too. Like we should be engaging with with these very serious issues and talking about it and, and thinking about the, the kinds of things that we can do to to change, um, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it seems, well, there's, so much there, but it seems like the way I look at it now is like literally, and I'm not being hyperbolic, is that whatever opinion you can have, you can find it. It's out there. Yeah. One thing the internet has taught me among many things is that <laughs> yes, we are unique human beings, but yes, I, I realized even like what I thought was like my sense of humor, or like with my mm-hmm. friends, it's so unique and like friends would be like, you're yeah. brilliant, Frank, you're so funny. <laughs> I was like, I find memes and things that are right in line with that sense mm-hmm. of humor and like even funnier. And I'm just like, wow, it's, every voice is, is present. And Let's, so I don't want to add to it. I really, well, I'm adding to it by doing this podcast, <laughs> but I don't want to, I, I don't have social media, so I don't want to yeah. add to it because I, who cares? Like what, what I have to say really, well, I am on a podcast that is related to social media and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say like, I, I did have this great idea for a site called Only Flans, where it was just um, a site about people's love for a flan. I and I Googled it. it. Yes. And there's, and it there's not just one. I think there's multiple like Only Flans groups. See, that's, we're not which, unique. Which, no, we're not. Which actually should lead us to the fact that if we're not really all that yeah. unique, but, you know, of course, in some ways we are, but there's that we that we should come together more but that maybe makes people more angry this is more, uh, yeah go ahead no we're doubling down on their i am unique now which is what are you gonna say oh i was gonna say like um i've never really felt unique in some ways because if you ever do a google of my name crystal chen there's like so many right. people with my name i think including somebody who like graduated from my grad school the year before with the same exact name um yeah. but there's also and maybe i mentioned this before there's a romance book that is coming out called oh man i forgot the name of it maybe it's like set it on i'm gonna just google it really quick set it set it on wait hold on <laughs> oh this is set no wait it's called uh set on you so it's a romance book by amy lee and it's a it's a debut romantic comedy about a curvy fitness influencer crystal chen and it's spelled like my my actual name and stuff uh. so i just think it's kind of hilarious and i had this idea that maybe i should do a facebook post and call out all the crystal chens of the world and be like let's do a book club and read this book together but i i, I don't feel like a unique person because it is such a common name and I think there's a lot of people like me. Well, see, that also plays into what I've said before and what we've talked about before is that to understand yourself before you put forward an aggressive opinion about something, it's like, well, you understand, like to, to analyze like from, from where you operate and 
the fact that you say, well, I've never quite always felt unique is an important component of your personality, actually, that will play into how you express your opinions and how you, for, for, you know, uh, uh, communicate. Uh, um, I was thinking about something like that on the, oh, on the way in. And I said it at the top of this thing, how I've always been resistant to being told what to do. And I think I somehow mistrust, automatically mistrust authority uh, in some ways. And then I was thinking, well, because of my parents and then you, know, you can go into that. And like, I've always been sort of like immediately, like I just cause someone in authority says do this. Um, I'm always like, well, why? But see, but like, you know, with the pandemic and mask wearing, because that became an issue too about personal liberty and about divisiveness on social media. You know, I was like, wear a mask. And then I was like, well, hmm, makes sense. And then I would think about like, well, what, what we know about virology and how we, how we catch diseases. And I'm choosing to trust the sources that saying there is an actual disease. It's not a, it's not a conspiracy. So yeah, wearing a mask makes sort of sense. So I get it. Like, you know, my sister's a doctor and she wears masks all the time. So obviously there's something historical about protection, protecting yourself and other people by wearing it. So, okay. But I thought through it as we all should. And then also understand if you really don't like it, that somebody else might believe it and you sort of can, you can coexist with that without having to aggressively go after them. I'll just end with like a couple of quotes from this article that says, a democracy cannot survive if its public squares are places where people fear speaking up and where no stable consensus can be reached. That was another element of the article about how not only people do speak out, but then eventually are afraid to speak out because they don't want to be canceled or condemned. And institutions are afraid to um, speak out of what they think might be true if it goes counter to what their party or their side vociferously believes and will not self will will self censor themselves, which it, this author thinks is is a is not a good thing for democracy. Um, and then it, he finishes that thought with, um, this creates a system that looks less like democracy and more like rule by the most aggressive. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is we can never return the way to the way things were in the pre-digital age. The norms, institutions, and forms of political participation that developed during the long era of mass communication are not going to work well now that technology has made everything so much faster and more multi-directional. And when bypassing professional gatekeepers is so easy, gatekeepers like librarians, and yet American democracy is now operating outside the bounds of sustainability. Mm-hmm. I like that uh, word you use, multi-directional. I think it's an interesting way to think about social media too, right? Because we're not... It's not always, even though maybe sometimes it replicates that, uh, a one-on-one, like we're having a dialogue right now between two people, like the way it gets maybe like retweeted, the way like other people interact with it, that kind of multi-directional aspect of it is kind of interesting. Um, Also listening to you talk, the other part that I find interesting too is I think you talked about earlier this idea of performance, which I feel like we all maybe engage with in some way too, but I do encounter things where it feels like it is that performance of like just proving somebody wrong. Whereas sometimes, you know, more rarely I do see where people are 
the goal of responding is to come to a common understanding. And I feel like that's much more rare than maybe it would be in a in-person conversation where we're trying to come to like a common understanding, even if we yeah. maybe disagree. And I feel like that maybe happens less in my experience of, of the, the rare social media that I do use and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just very interesting to under, I, I understand human behavior. I mean, that's what really this is all about. Like when something becomes super popular, like social media, I want to figure out why. And yeah. also understand that, is it just because it's invented and popular, does that make it good? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like <laughs> to allude to this morning, like all the technical difficulties I had getting on, um, you, you know, I bring it back to that. Um, <laughs> it's good to analyze because yeah. like, I, like I alluded to, there were so many emotions going on there. Like, and that does relate to how we, what we post on social media and how we handle people on social mm-hmm. media is that I was furious and I was sort of letting it spray out to you and to the producer and, such but then i immediately knew it's not their fault like yeah. says, don't be angry at them like I, there was I one point you, I were said angry you were like oh shoot like he's really serious and like i'm shutting up and then i had to make a joke a little later because i felt guilty about <laughs> being angry and then i also felt like you were looking at me like i was not smart because i couldn't figure it out because i get impatient with people who like can't yeah. unmute themselves and i couldn't mm-hmm. do it and it it all gets into the pot of emotion of human emotion. Yeah. And if I were on social media and I reacted, I could have, and I could have lashed out at somebody and said, blah, 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 you. And then really realizing it's not them. It's really was me. It was my headspace that was feeling guilty and shame and, mm-hmm. and feeling like I was being looking like I was stupid. And then I felt guilty for feeling that. And it's just reflection. That gets you. Yes, I find that so interesting. No, but I find that so interesting to hear your um, sequence of events. Because number one, I did not know you were actually angry at us. (laughs) I I was like, I was. Well, I guess that's my point. I'm not. I wasn't angry at you. I was just frustrated, and but I thought that's the thing. You never come off as you think you're coming off. Sometimes I thought I was being very obviously angry at you guys and, and a little bit terse and maybe even rude and you clearly well, yes but but i didn't but you know it's that thing of like, absolutely 100 percent. but i think it's that thing of like um like i, I was like for for me like because it was a, a a challenging technical issue in the beginning you know like i definitely saw your frustration but also like understood the frustration because like it's, it's a lot to deal with like obviously like i went through so many technical issues um and still continue to do so and i think it was just more like i think feeling concern that you were stressed out was my main feeling and also relief that I was not dealing with the technical issues because I have experienced that and it is very like, it's terrible. Yeah. It's really terrible because it feels so frustrating. But that's a good point um, because like I forgot in the heat of it that you did go through them until oh, yes. our, our technical <laughs> so problems. I was like, well, you know, the producer had problems too and yes. you had problems and I was just yeah. like totally forgiving and like maybe a little, you know, impatient, but yeah, that's my yeah. problem. But yeah. then now when I had the technical problems, I felt like no one ever had a technical problem before I did. And I'm the stupidest person in the world, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And that's really on me to and, reflect on and own. And yes. Own. And I think that idea of like 
feeling the like we're being stupid or the personal shame of that, all that kind of stuff is interesting as well, because I don't think at, at any point that was like a thought that crossed our heads, you know, at all. Right. Because again, it's such a common experience. I don't think like we are for our jobs, like need to know like every how to like turn on the mic and all of this kind of stuff, right? right? I don't know. Computers yeah. are weird. And that's why we have a whole IT department that are very skilled in what they do. But it's <laughs> interesting how this conversation about um, mm-hmm. like political discourse and, and democracy and, and our new way of communicating sort of did turn into a conversation. Well, I guess I pushed it there about human nature, <laughs> which is really the ultimate conversation about like why we behave the way we do. And, you know, I mean, like you said before, social media used for pleasure, like is totally understandable, but social media has become the, and I've said this before, the media, like, yeah. and there was a quote in that article I just reminded that, that Twitter could overpower any newspaper in the country, any newspaper mm-hmm. outlet in the country, and it has. Um, meaning if Twitter got, its, got itself together and went after something, it was, yeah. it's, it's more powerful than our so-called respected sources, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is an alarming thing because mm-hmm. like half those things that are outraged are bots or mm-hmm. people who forgot they retweeted it two, five minutes later. And that's not mm-hmm. democracy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, and I think, what did you read, honey? Okay. <laughs> oh, I was just going to add one last thought, which is like I, I, my, my feelings about social media is ultimately I think it's a, it's a tool that people use, right? Like as you said, for good or for ill. And I question like the algorithm and like the power of the algorithm as something that can really skew things one way or the other and kind of thinking about its influence more so than the individual people who are like tweeting, you know, right? Yeah. Um, Anyways, but also like the people who are creating the algorithms, their internal biases, all that kind of stuff that you mentioned as well. Totally. But um, so the yeah, thing- Mark Zuckerberg that created Facebook to so guys could hook up with girls in college. It's like that's how oh yeah 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 like the actual Facebook pamphlets yes with the pictures yeah. of everyone yes way back when it's all a crazy nutty kind of world. <laughs> so I actually don't know how to talk about this book, but I'm just gonna give it a shot. <laughs> the book I have. The cover, which I'm sure will be attached, is a a, a great cover. It's called mm. Vladimir by Julia May Jonas. And it is a debut novel. I believe I think it's a debut, right? Um, it was actually recommended to me by Lynn, who's like the head of reader services. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. The the um cover, which I'll describe, is basically a bare-chested fella with a cardigan, a no, corduroy jacket that's open, right? <laughs> kind of provocative. Um, but the, the book itself actually is, does and doesn't reflect the cover in some ways. Like if you look at the cover, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be like some steamy romance book. And it's not really that. In fact, what it is, is it follows um, an English professor who is uh, about 58. Uh, she talks about her age a lot. She works at a small liberal arts college. Um, she has, I think, a slightly older husband, and he is kind of facing um, accusations of inappropriate conduct with students. And the way she kind of like talks about it is, is essentially prior to them having the, the college having a rule about like not fraternizing or having a relationship with students, he had um, multiple affairs, right? And she knew about them. And in fact, almost like, I want to say, 
mm, approve, condone, because it kind of allowed her to have her own affairs and to have this kind of freedom. Mm. But the 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 book title Vladimir is um, this other character Vladimir Vladinsky, who is a, a a young professor who's also a novelist, um, who is part of the faculty of the school that she sort of fixates on as the object of her desire. Um, and he is younger than her, and he also has a younger wife named um, Cynthia Tong. What's really interesting about this book is, um, one, I think Vladimir is probably the least developed character of this book. I think the main um, narrator, uh, her thoughts are very complex. Um, she almost uses this person, Vladimir, as, I guess, like almost like a reflection or um, a carrier for her own thoughts about like power and desire. And it's mm -hmm. sort of, I don't know, like, what is that thing? Um, like a looking glass where it'll, like the sunbeam goes through and it kind of like, refracts. You know, yeah, refracts it and makes it like more intense. I almost feel like he's that. He's like a oh, looking glass situation for her own thoughts and her own desires. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think there is mm -hmm. this intersection of um, desire and power, right? Like one in the sense of her older husband, who is a professor, who had these like so-called consensual relationships with younger students. Um, but also he is in the position of power. And even though they are, the students were like, I guess like older than 20 are still really young people, right? And like maybe how that power kind of sways them, right? And then she's also sort of, I don't want to spoil too much, but at the end, <laughs> at the the end is really wild. I actually feel like the the majority of this book, I would say three-fourths um, of the book, uh, Lynn likes to describe it as like nothing really happens in the book. And I would say like three-fourths of the book, that's pretty much true. Like the, the Vlad and his wife come over for dinner. She is like teaching her classroom. There's a lot of dialogue between different people. And she is doing like a lot of thinking about her life and experiences, right? And then the last quarter, I think, things take a turn. <laughs> Um, and I, spoiler alert, I guess, if I can just put these. <laughs> spoiler alert, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I feel like sometimes with these spoiler alerts, because there are certain books where if you know what happens, I think it can change your perception of the book. Um, and I don't know if this. Yeah. I mean, this might do that, too. So so it is a spoiler alert. Okay. Essentially, she at some point thinks that her husband, John, is having an affair with Cynthia, who is Vladimir's right. younger wife. And Even younger this, than young Vladimir. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I forget the exact age difference. Yeah. It's listed in the book somewhere. Um, yeah. And she decides, it's so, it's so questionable. Actually, mm. not questionable. It's terrible. She basically um, invites him for dinner takes him out to a cabin, drugs his drink, right? And with the intention possibly of raping him, it's it's kind of like a little bit fuzzy, but right. what she ends up doing is like binding him to a bed. And then when he awakes, he's like, obviously like freaked out. 
she kind of plays it off like, oh, we, we both like had too much to drink. Like, I don't know what happened, blah, blah, blah. And it feels like a weird kind of shifting of, of her own like ability to take on power by doing this obviously like hugely terrible thing. Also trigger warning for people, right? Um, but then that power also starts to shift a little bit too when when he was passed out, she texted his wife, like some made up excuse. And when he awakes, he like buys her story. But then um, because his laptop is connected to his uh, phone, he sees that text message, even though she had deleted it and recognizes that she had kind of maybe plan some aspects of it and also seems like he's okay with it. Right. And it's almost feels like a retaking of that power in some way. So the power mm-hmm. dynamics become like very interesting in this book, um, even all the way to the end to where she is visited by one of the people that her husband had an affair with. And then she kind of, um, there's a passage where it almost seems like she's thinking out the thoughts of that person. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to kind of like describe, but I, I will read some quotes from it because I also find this book to be a very interesting book. I think the, the voice, the narration, she's a very interesting person, not always a very likable person. I think in the beginning, she's very dislikable, but very humorous in how she kind of digs at certain things. And maybe in the middle, I felt kind of like, oh, I, I maybe like, there's a certain resonance here, like being a, a woman, being in this kind of position, right? Mm. And then, of course, at the end, she does something I think, like, you know, it's pretty, pretty unforgivable. Um, wow. Even books. more than the story you just told, she goes for. No, that was the thing. That was the unforgivable oh, okay. thing, was the drugging and, oh. and planning of whatever she was planning to do. Um, so it starts with the prologue. The, the first line is, which I think is a very provocative line. Um, when I was a child, I loved old men and I could tell that they also loved me. And it goes on to talk about how like she was very eager to please them. She wanted them to think well of her. Um, and then she goes on later uh, down that paragraph on the first page. What I like most about old men now, however, and the reason I often feel that perhaps I am an old man more than I am an oldish white woman in her late 50s, the identity I am burdened with publicly presenting to my general embarrassment is that old men are composed of desire. Everything about them is wanting. Hmm. They have appetites for food, boats, vacations, entertainment. They want to be stimulated. They want to sleep. They are guided by desire. Their world is made up of their desires. And it's interesting because then I feel like as the book continues, it's really about her own desires, right? And her fixation on this this kind of like flat character, Vladimir. Mm-hmm. Let me see. They have. You should be so proud of me. I have so many sticky notes. I, I saw. Chrissy and Tara that some of my sick notes actually fell out in my bag because they were not the first thing I thought (laughs) I was very impressed when I saw that the first thing I thought when you said Vladimir is I thought of Uh was it going to be some sort of rumination on Vladimir Nabokov and Lolita he's it's interesting so she she says old men like I was when I was young I was into older men Lolita's you know I would be shocked if she was not thinking about that book too in some sense Obviously, I mean, she does. um, It is brought up. Because she let me see if I can find a quote. There's some really great quotes. And this is very easy to like mark a lot of things. Um, She was sort of ruminating about her classes and the stuff that she was teaching and whether or not there 
I think it was the section about like whether or not there should be morality in arts, right? Like whether or not those kinds of things need to be tied together. And I think there she kind of almost provides it, or the, sorry, the story provides the example of that towards the end because um, it, it turns out John and Cynthia were maybe not so much having an affair. They were having this like writing club situation. Mm-hmm. And John ends up finishing his epic poem that he was working on. Um, Cynthia finishes whatever her book, it does really well. Um, his poem, however, when it gets submitted for publication, there's a lot of pushback against it because of his um, past history as this professor who had these sort of inappropriate relationships with um, his students, right? Uh, let me see if I can find that quote. <laughs> Um, yeah, please. Sexy times. Wait, wait sexy times? <laughs> okay, that, here we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is not the one that mentions the book off, but does talk about the art and morality. Um, let's see. It, it starts because she is watching the Billy Wilder film, The Apartments. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. I was not, okay. Um, so she is talking about that with her daughter, um, Sid. And Sid is having issues with it because, um, let's see, of the representations, I think of maybe like the women in it. Yeah, as, as right. being presented as like fools and sluts. Uh, in the book, or sorry, in the movie. Um, mm. But what I was becoming so frustrated with, and the reason I felt more and more like not teaching, was that I believe that art was not a moral enterprise, that morality in art was what happened when the church or the state got involved, that if you insisted on infusing art with morality, you would, it would insist on lies and limits. Truth could be found only outside the confines of morality. Art needed to be taken and rejected on its own terms. Art was not the artist. Were these all simply platitudes I had absorbed without question? I felt more and more mixed up about it recently. Should we only portray the world we wanted to see? Should we consider certain stories uh, damaging, in quotes, and restrict them from a general audience, not trusting them to take in the story without internalizing the messaging? How do we all agree that morality and art was bad? But art did cause damage, and I was affected by films I had seen when I was young, and I was ashamed when I watched an old film and saw racist depictions I hadn't seen before, and I was glad to be ashamed. But did we all have to see ourselves in the presentations of types? Did I have to feel like every wife and mother was presenting an overarching narrative of of capital wife and uh, capital mother that reinforced or rejected my own experience? Yep. That's the art thing. Morale, I mean, morality is an interesting concept to to, to tussle with, you know? Mm -hmm. That's very true, actually. I find... Is the author, I guess, do you see the author's the same age as the protagonist? The picture looks same. younger. So it says uh, in the, the author photo and bio, it says Julie Mae Jonas is a playwright and teaches theater at Skidmore mm. College. She holds an MFA in playwriting from Columbia University and lives in Brooklyn with her family and Vladimir's her debut novel. She definitely seems on the young side. I don't think she's the same age as the protagonist of okay. it. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. There's so many other great quotes, but I feel like I don't think we have time to go through all of them. 
but it's definitely a book that I would recommend to folks reading. Um, I think the protagonist is awful, but also kind of funny in the way that she describes things. And there are several like very funny moments. I think it's described as like darkly comedic and I would agree with that. Um, and I think there are some very interesting ideas that it presents that like makes you kind of reflect on, on where we stand when it comes to those ideas of like power and desire and, and arts. Um, what I would did you also, think of that? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. What what, I was gonna say, what do you think of that quote that you read? I'll have to go back to it now. Yeah, just I'm curious. I have mixed emotions, right? Because I feel like in some ways she describes some of her students, like her younger students, and there's a little bit of disdain in it, but I'm also like, I think that's me. <laughs> like the students and their kind of reactions to things where, you know, it's hard. She, I think she describes how um, I think some of her students have a hard time engaging with certain books and certain um bits of literature because of the way the women are presented or these other issues of like race and those depictions and are so fixated on that. And instead what she wants them to do is to see like the use of symbols, the use of like, I don't know, these other kind of uh, literature themes and how they construct a novel and that that is not the only thing about those books to fixate on. Um, and I feel mixed about it because I sometimes think about that of myself, that like, am I fixating too much on some of these issues? But I also feel like those are still very important issues to really think about and to consider and to um, question, you know, right? Like, you know, like, yeah. are there other books that maybe do not deal with these terrible representations of of women or um, BIPOC that can still offer those same sorts of insights on the construction of books and and, and um, good writing um, and how the, the power dynamics come to play like in a classroom setting as well. So I, I understand what she's saying. And I'm not saying like the author necessarily agrees with this protagonist because the protagonist like obviously has done some wild stuff, right? Yeah. But I appreciate the questioning of those issues because that was part of the 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 snippet i read from the francis fukuyama book liberalism and its discontents which talks about postmodern culture going going from moral relative relativism which says that like every system has its own subjective morality and and, as opposed to another system Mm -hmm. of culture that could have its own perception morality that has moved towards more cognitive relativism, which says that even perceived facts and the emotions that one feels are separate from everyone else. So it's like, and just as important, which is an interesting way, which is interesting to what you're saying is that somehow it's also, it's good to be exhorted to look at like the system of the movie, The Apartment Mm -hmm. as its own relative space. And you can, observe it without getting upset about it because it's you can see it in its own moral universe and make decisions and comments based on the understanding of that mm-hmm. you know that you yeah that woman was presented as purely a sexual object or that race was completely denigrated um in this moral universe of 50 years ago and what does that mean for today mm-hmm. and not and not immediately denigrate the entire enterprise as art 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think that's what you were in the area of. Yeah, kind of. You're like, sure, sort of. <laughs> You're like, we're not communicating very well. <laughs> well okay, no, but sorry. I mean, like, I mean, I feel like if if people read the actual passage in the book, like it goes on more because her daughter has like more thoughts about this and like kind of presents her own opinions about um, art and morality and, and those aspects because for her, so like the, uh, the like another quote is like for her, she said, and that's Sid, the misogyny of the part most primarily distracting and kept her from enjoying the film the way it was meant to. Mm. Um, it was meant to be agreed with in a certain way, but she couldn't agree with it. Um, and it's like, just like an interesting kind of back and forth too there. And I was gonna say there's another interesting back and forth between Sid's and um, the protagonist about like power and its attraction. And they kind of go back and forth there too. But anyways, I know I really like this book. I would be interested mm. to, I was gonna suggest, I was trying to think of Rita likes for this book, but it's not a, I don't normally read books like this. I'm much more into like plot driven books, um, like the like Michael Bay type movies, oh, car chases, God, really? <laughs> giant robots. Like, How did you come across this book, by the I way? You, I told you Lynn suggested it. Also, the cover was great. Because of the cover? No, Lynn Lobash. Oh, Lynn. The head of Reader's so Services. She was like, oh, this book is so great. You should totally read this. And I was like, Wow. Right, Lynn. Lynn's like a she's like a drug pusher, but with books. Always trying to push books on me. And honestly, they're they're good. I like them. Um I forgot what else I was gonna say. Oh, I was gonna say I would be I have not read My Dark Vanessa. That was a book that mm-hmm. came out a few years ago. Yeah. That is it from the point of view of the student who has an affair with an older yeah. yes. professor. I I would be interested. I might read that to see how that perspective also yeah yeah, compares to something like this because it's from that other end she touches on um that other perspective from the students just like in the last two pages and it's very interesting also i would say you would i think enjoy this book a lot and if you do read it let me know what you think about the very last line which is only two words that's all I'll say. I wrote it down, so I will take a look. Ah, very interesting. It is, it is, a, it is a little off the beaten track for you, so mm-hmm. I'm intrigued that you read it. I know oftentimes I read a book and I get disappointed that you're not reading it as well because I want to know what you think, but we are reading a book together the next time. Yeah. With the title, which is? I forgot. <laughs> are we reading a book today or a couple of days ago oh, I, I think so i have an e lights from uncommon stars yeah light from uncommon stars i'm excited to read that as well by Rika okay. yes right. light from uncommon stars mm-hmm. now i want to read vladimir and discuss i think that. you should i like I think, power dynamics you know what? Power dynamics. dynamics. And also she does, I mean, like, again, the output of her self-reflection is not ideal, but she does so much self-reflection in this that I found it very interesting because I feel like I was doing the same kinds of things as I was reading. And I know that you like really self-reflective books. So I feel like this was mm-hmm. a very good one. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, like this, the Dana Maw that you described about her drugging Vladimir and all that stuff is, it's like, 
I guess some people could find it painful to read and like you said, triggering. Um, I, I sort of relish that kind of thing just to see how an act plays out and then analyze why wouldn't I do that or, but acknowledge also the desire. Sometimes we all have to do things like, not specifically that, but it could be that, but how we relate to power and, and, and analyze how maybe we have the same impulses that maybe we don't act on, or maybe we do, that um, can really be a power dynamic problem. The, right? And I'll, yes, and I'll say there was another thing that happened that I won't mention that at the very end that was also very um, interesting. Um, it, I almost want to reread that whole last section because of what you said. I think I need more time with it because her mind space and her thinking as that stuff was happening was, I would say, very intriguing, maybe is the word to use. But yes. Vladimir. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to. Oh, the alarm. Let's hit the road. But producer, pull a book, pull a card. I mean. Faster, Chrissy, faster. (laughs) Drive, drive. (laughs) The upside down temperance card. Okay, temperance card. Upside down. Pull it upside down. Do you think it means that we need to, okay, reversed? Uh, Reverses imbalance, excess self healing, realignment. Sweet. So we go down to the reverse. Uh, Oopsies. Uh, if you have recently experienced a period of excess, temperance reverses your invitation or sometimes your warning signal to restore balance and moderation as soon as possible. You may have been overeating, regularly drinking, buying things you can't afford, arguing with loved ones, or engaging in negative thought patterns. These activities are taking you further away from who you are and what you are here to do. So it is time to stop, as they say, everything in moderation, or you may find you need 100% abstinence to break this negative cycle and bring your life back into balance again. So it reflects the period of self-evaluation, time to re-examine your life priorities, and I think it's calling for a profound self-healing by creating more balance and moderation in your life. So, yeah, I dig it. I I feel like, yes, I have been doing a lot of shopping, (laughs) so I think that's why I need to stop. And other things, I'm sure. Yes. Does that resonate with you, Frank? Yeah. Oh yeah, the fire alarm's going off again. But he he's right. nodding. He's mm-hmm. nodding. So I think it's very true. Okay. Okay, so oh, I right. don't Before remember. I, oh, I was going to make Sorry, something the fire up. Alarm's going off here. Okay. Uh, well, we've come bye. to the end of our podcast. Good day. <laughs> Good day. Have a Great. stern rest of your week. <laughs> Great. Great job everyone. We did it. (laughs) Everybody in the pool. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.